and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Nick Jameson. Now, Nick has done it all in his storied career. Musician, actor, voiceover actor, and now stand-up comic. Probably best known for portraying the Russian president Suvorov on 24. He did that for a couple seasons. We talk about that role. He's done a ton of voiceover work Frozen. Probably best known for Chancellor Palpatine in the 2003 Clone Wars series. We talk about his work with LucasArts. But he started his career as a musician, and he was part of Foghat, and everyone knows Slow Ride, we talk about that. He was also a solo artist, and the day I recorded this interview, I found out something that blew my mind. Uh, one of my like favorite songs, Guilty Pleasure song, sung by another artist, was originated by Nick. And I discovered that the day of the interview, so we talk about that as well. Now he lives in Iceland, and he's a stand-up comic. Very, very interesting career Nick has had. We talk about that, why he landed in Iceland. Uh, very nice guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nick. So, Nick, uh, thank you so much for joining us. How is basically the quarantine life for you now? Uh, it's well, We're pretty back, much op- open back up in Iceland. Um, we locked down pretty quick as soon as it started happening. And everybody was very uh, responsible about it. So um, we're back up and running. It's uh, it's all pretty good. I mean, it's, bars and clubs are opening up on the 25th. Uh, and everything else is pretty much normal. You know, social distancing, not, the, not as many people out as usual. Um, and I don't know how the, the venue kind of thing is going to work out. I guess they'll have, you know, they won't have full houses. They'll have to space people out more. But uh, it feels like it's getting pretty big back to normal here. Have you uh, you have any shows scheduled? I know you're doing some stand-up stuff. I think that, yeah, we're coming back up uh, next week. Um, we're going to have shows uh, I think Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. It's going to, you know, it's going to be a little lighter than usual. We were usually open every night down at the club. It's Secret Cellar is the club that we have here for English language comedy. And I think we're going to start up slow, and it's also going to be uh, comedy in English and Icelandic, since we have very few tourists here now, except ones that get stuck here before they can get out. So it's going to be a little different for a while, but uh, we do plan to have shows next week. So we'll see how that goes. Do you, do you speak any Icelandic? Uh, hardly any. It's, <laughs> it's embarrassing. I spend all my time hanging around with uh, Icelandic comics who want to do comedy in English, so they don't really even want to speak Icelandic. Right. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah. 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 And every, everybody here speaks like better English than we do, so it's oh, <laughs> it's hard to get the motivation going, but I, I will eventually. Right, exactly. It's on the list, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you end up in Iceland? Um, I saw a Bobby Fischer documentary and I got the, that got the idea stuck in my head, and then one Christmas I decided to, you know, I, I thought, well, I want to go somewhere Christmassy that I've never been before, that doesn't have that many tours, and there weren't that many tours back then. And um, so I came over Christmas and stayed uh, like two and a half weeks and just fell in love with it. And I came back the next Christmas, and then the next Christmas after that, then I came back in the summer, and um, I think after the third time I just decided to, I just decided to move here. I just felt there wasn't any reason I cared about not to, so and I never looked back. It's one of the best things I ever did. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
now it's a pretty touristy spot, right? So at least like my friends on Facebook. Uh, yeah, it was getting very, uh, yeah, well, huge amounts of tourism. It's gotten, gotten very popular. It may have peaked. We don't know. Uh, you know, and right now you can't tell because of the virus. But um, we'll see. You know, they're going to open up tourism pretty soon, I think. You know, they're going to be very careful about it. But um, it's, uh, yeah, not too far in the future, I think. I mean, people may start coming back. Right, you know, hopefully, because you know, everyone was like, especially here, ditching to you know to, to get out and, and do something, especially uh, with the yeah. We're recording this now, the Memorial Day weekend. I know everyone wants to you know try to go to a beach here or something like that. And a lot of the restrictions are you know are yeah. Lifted well, you guys so got hit hard, pretty hard there. A lot, a lot more than we did. Yeah, exactly. You know, what happens when you have you know uh, who, who's in charge of our country now that the uh, Oh yeah, yeah, that didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> More on in chief. Yeah, that, that, that's for sure. Now, uh, obviously, you've you've played a president before on Twenty Four. I think it's probably your best known, like on screen role. Uh, you know, big fan of the show. Uh, and you're one of the ones who actually who who was in charge of a country, a government, or a you know a, agency that lasted more than one season. So, <laughs> right, you know, true. Yeah. So, what, what was your experience like doing that show? Uh, it was great. It's a great family on that show. We really, everybody just liked each other and really enjoyed doing it. And um, it's such an intense show, but on set it was so mellow and laid back. And, uh, you know, you would never, <laughs> you know, the two things were just worlds apart. And um, the thing I was surprised about, you know, they let me change dialogue if it didn't feel right or something. They did it with everybody. It's like, can I say it like this? Oh, yeah, no problem. Because you know, I would have I would have thought, okay, everything's got to be really exact on this show because when you watch it, it's so precise and right. everything's all so coordinated. But um, you know, it, it, the guys the guys who created the show are just really brilliant. Uh, you know, John Cassar and those guys, uh, Howard Gordon, and um, and the rest of the guys. Uh, they um, they just had this vision of how everything was going to. You know, you read the scripts and it's right. pretty much. Action-wise, it's pretty much exactly what happened. All the cuts, all the, you know, going to boxes, everything. It's not like they messed around with it a lot after the fact. Um, it's really, they really had a vision and they really rocked. Were you a fan of the show before you got cast on it? Uh, I hadn't seen it, actually. Okay. I'd heard everybody was telling me, oh, you got to watch 24. So when I got the audition, I think, uh, I think I still hadn't seen the show because I, I think I had to go in the same day. Right. Um, but after I got the part, I binged for a weekend. I figured, oh, I'll just watch a couple of these episodes, get up to speed. And I ended up watching, I think, all of season one and two and three <laughs> over the weekend. It was like, it's so addictive. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a fantastic show. I, I just interviewed uh, Sarah Clark, who played Nina Myers. On, on the oh, yeah. Show. Yeah, no, she, she, was, she was fantastic on it. Uh, like, obviously, you played, you know, a Russian president and you're from America. How, how difficult was that to kind of nail that uh dialect and accent for you well i i kind of went very light on it um all the villains on 24 are very thick russian accents you know like they really pushed it so i kind of made him a little more you know like he'd been educated in english uh, pretty well i started out kind of playing him like the diplomats i'd known when i was a kid we traveled around a lot uh through europe uh, as a kid, and I met a lot of people in that 
in that line, not presidents, but, you know, ambassadors and such. And they were always very uh, dignified and sort of elegant and, and very well-spoken. So I think that influenced me. And um, that whole kind of, I feel like I was kind of the nice guy on the show. <laughs> you know, the only guy that didn't play status didn't, you know, lie, didn't do any of the stuff that everybody does on that show. And so I really liked it when they turned me totally bad at the end. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, you were like, you know, ordering hits on, you know, Jack Bauer's girlfriend and stuff like that. It was, uh, I know, yeah. I was terrible. Yeah, yeah exactly. And in the, but in the beginning, because of that approach I'd taken, I think uh, they uh, set up uh, me and my wife as the functional couple in opposition to uh, Greg Itzen and uh, Gene Smart, the dysfunctional couple, yeah. which was, it was kind of funny. It was fun. I thought that worked pretty well. Yeah. And you know, they, they were great on the show. Uh, their scenes were oh, they're great. brilliant. Both of those guys are yeah. amazing actors. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, yeah, I learned so much from working with all those guys. I mean, they just had just outstanding people on that show. Yeah, they did. Whether you know the, the regular cat, you know, cast or the co-stars or recurring characters, yeah, they they nailed everything on on that show. Absolutely. Now, um, it's funny because like you played a part in like my family's indirectly, you know, because I mentioned before the um, interview. My son was a big Clifford fan. Uh, still has his doll that he carried around for like three years. Right, he's right. fifteen now, and he carried it around for like four years when he was, you know, much younger. And you voiced Sheriff Lewis on the cartoon yeah. in the movie. Um, when when you voiced that character, were you in like the sound booth by yourself, or were the other cast members, you know, named like John Ritter there? Had that work out? Um, that uh, John wasn't always there, but everybody else was pretty much there all the time. Um, it was at that time. At that time, everybody was transitioning away from doing that, you know, and nowadays there's so much of you just do it by yourself, um, which I don't like at all. And and movies are very much like that. Uh, Animated movies are pretty much all done like that. But that one, yeah, we had the cast in the room, the Kent Susie, Chris Summer, and I just, um, I I think, you know, I, I just remember John not being there that much. Right. Uh, he's probably busy with other stuff, and he probably came in with his parts later. Yeah. Now, like you mentioned, like you know, doing it like you know, most movies now do it by themselves. Uh, I'd imagine you kind of play off the other actors, so it probably helps you do a better job if they're in the room. Oh yeah, yeah, you do, uh, and especially like on the primetime shows I've done, like The Critic and Mission Hill and uh, Gary and Mike, they definitely you know, really like to do it not only all at the same time, but they'll do entire scenes from start to finish, which is very unusual in animation. Usually just take much shorter chunks and do them and then go back and punch in this line and pick up that line. But in those shows, I guess it's all the guys that (laughs) used to work in the Simpsons. Um, They just maintain that a tradition of just having everybody in a semicircle around mics and just acting out the whole entire scene. And then if you needed something redone after it was all animated, you know, we'd come in and do ADR sessions or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot more fun for the actors. I think at least I felt that way. Right. And you mentioned, you know, the, the, the critic and the Simpsons, you know, creative producers. I actually, uh, Interviewed Mike Reese and went over to ah yeah, yeah my his, buddy yeah, <laughs> I his, love his, Mike yeah his apartment a couple of years ago and we you know 
We discussed Queer Duck a lot too, which ended up oh yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And Howard Gordon from Twenty Four yeah. was worked on, on, on Queer Duck, right? Yeah, no, that show was kind of before its time. I think it would have been a bigger hit now. But, yeah, it probably would. Yeah. It probably would. It's weird. You can't keep up with what Mike's doing. He just so much stuff. Yeah. He told me a long time ago, I don't know, I think when he was late 30s or 40s, that he was retiring. And he and his wife, Denise, just traveled the world. Yeah. And they still do. They travel the world all the time. Yeah, always. And uh, nonstop. And then he'll come back and do a couple episodes of The Simpsons and they'll travel again. And uh, But meanwhile, he's cranking out plays and books and everything else you know he's just he's doing more i think than he did before he so-called retired yeah i i caught him like i think within like a week between going to different countries and went over his place and you know hell of a nice guy and uh yeah he just wrote like a kind of memoirs about his time on the simpsons which was really really fun oh yeah 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 so you saw him in new york right yeah 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 because they moved there i don't know what five six years ago at least (laughs) yeah but it, yeah, it was uh, the, the book was, and it was it was doing. I knew he was doing a book tour too about about the Simpsons as well. So he's he's busy, <laughs> that's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, he's one of the most prolific people I know. Yeah. Now, uh, like he's done so much like Star Wars work between the video games, and, you know, the, the cartoons. Um, how, how did you get involved in that franchise? Boy, hard to remember. Uh, I was doing that from early on, video games. Um, I think I was one of the first guys in LA to start doing video games back in the, I don't know, 91 maybe or so. Um, they didn't call them video games, they called them talkies. Right. It's when they first started putting voices in video games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the first thing I did was a LucasArts production of the Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, I think. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And, um, that's how I got involved with LucasArts. And from that, I think that led into the Star Wars stuff. Um, and I did, I did quite a few projects before the Star Wars stuff with those guys. But then, uh, yeah, I started doing the Emperor and that, and, you know, with the books and all that other stuff too. Were, were you a fan of the movies before, like, getting that? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely, yeah. The early movies. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> they lost me after a while, you know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's classic mythological stuff. And um, you probably know that Mark Hamill is one of L.A.'s top voiceover people. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah, Between I mean, he's one of the, he's not a celebrity who does voiceovers. He's he's a real kick-ass voiceover person in the world of this. Yeah, I mean, even like, you know, the latest, like, Star Wars movies, he, he's voiced over a, a few characters as well as playing, you know, Skywalker. And yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the sweetest guy you could ever meet, too. He was very helpful to me in my voiceover career and an acting career. He's just always very supportive, very nice, you know, very helpful. Yeah. Really cool guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's kind of getting, like, a revival now. You know, not, not just, you know, doing, you know, Skywalker, just getting uh, other work as well that... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he's you know he's big into uh, um, uh, comic books and stuff, and he's developing a lot of things in that area. Yeah, and it's like he, he never stopped working. You know, just people just didn't no. you know see him; they, they, they were just hear him. But you know, he's, he's just yeah, I think he just kind of got over the whole uh, on camera thing. He just right. once he got into voiceover, he just really liked it, and he's really good at it. So he just rocked that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Of the two, what do you prefer? Uh, I prefer on camera, um, and I love voiceover, but 
a lot of the way it's done nowadays where you're auditioning from home, you're in a studio by yourself, um, that kind of stuff. It took the fun out of it for me because yeah. um, I was in music most of my life before right. I started doing any of this. And I got to a point where I just didn't like being in the studio for, you know, massive numbers of hours. A lot of times I was working by myself in this very kind of isolated environment. I started doing voiceover. It was just so refreshing. You go out and do the job, interact with some cool people and, you know, go home and get paid. <laughs> and it's very different. And, um, but when it got into this uh, doing everything at home or doing everything in the studio by yourself, it lost a lot for me, honestly. Right. When you did like the Clone Wars, like you know the original series. Well, Wars. that yeah, that we were in, in the studio okay. together. And that was, that was another one that we were in the studio together. I, I don't know if they still do it that way, but yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I like you. You make character you played there was you know Chance of Palpatine who eventually became the Emperor. How? Um, Getting that dialect you know, and that voice, because Ian McDermott, who did it in the movies, had such a distinct, you know, voice for that. How was that difficult for you to kind of? Yeah, it is difficult, especially difficult to get his Senator Palpatine voice, because uh, yeah, it's, he's got so many little tonal variations. The Emperor is more kind of one thing. I mean, there are there are more variations than you would think here, and there. but uh, Senator Palpatine he's really had an interesting vocal tone on that. And he's such a good actor. And, you know, some of those more recent Star Wars movies that I'm not crazy about, mm-hmm. he'd be in a, for some reason, all these great actors all of a sudden didn't look so great in those movies. And he'll be in a scene with all, you know, Samuel Jackson and all these guys who normally blow you off the screen and everybody seems kind of stiff. And Ian McDowell is just like, you know, he's, he's in the Royal Shakespeare Company. He's just rocking it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's yeah he's quite quite the master. Yeah, because you, you mentioned Samuel Jackson, and you know if he's not cursing, he's not he's not rocking. <laughs> you know, he can't curse the Jedi, so it's like you should have had him. Yeah, I don't know guy. <laughs> how those movies ended up being that way. They they must have just done it in a way that those guys were not comfortable with. Or something. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of those guys just weren't used to like. It. Oh yeah, it could be that. Yeah, that was early days for that stuff. Yeah. So like when the um, you know, the last you know live action trilogy came out, and there were a lot of actors who did certain voices. Was there ever a mention of you kind of uh, getting involved in that? What in the movies? Yeah. No, I've never done any of the films. Um, never had anything to do with that whole world. Uh, I didn't like pursue it or anything. Um. Yeah, it's funny. It just sort of never, never came to mind. It's almost like I regarded it as this real universe that real people live in, and I don't live there. So, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? right? Yeah, because and then the uh, the second Clone Wars series came out, the one that Dave Filoni did. I know you had a part in, in, in an episode, but was there ever talk of you portraying uh, Palpatine in that? Um, I kind of lost track of it. Uh, after I stopped doing it, I, I'm not sure what was going on. I think I know Corey Burton kept doing it. I think, who else was in there? Was it Maurice LaMarche? Maybe was in there. James Taylor was in there. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember some of the guys kept doing it, but um, I kind of lost track of it. Right. Now, um, 
on screen, you you know, obviously you had some great episodes. You were in Lost and Mission 24 and stuff like that. Um, were you ever fans of the shows that you actually voiced? Them? Well, when Lost, when I got the Lost part, it had just aired its premiere episode, and I hadn't seen it. Okay. I was actually doing a voiceover on a James Brooke movie. Of, oh, was it uh, the one with Adam Sandler? Oh, God, I can't remember. Oh, uh, was it Eight Crazy Nights? Sorry? Eight Crazy Nights, was that it? No. Oh. Um, it's the one where Adam Sandler's a cook. And, uh, oh, geez, I don't remember it that well. Anyway, um, I was doing a voiceover in that. The, the, I think the night I got the audition, I didn't have any chance to do any kind of research on it. I just, um, but the care, I, I love that character and I love the way it was written. It, it just sort of touched something in me, you know. He was this, he was Australian, but he was right. a shy Aussie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, you know, Americans think about Aussies. They tell them to think about these big butch macho, you know, <laughs> throw, throw a couple of prawns on the barbie, mate. Yeah. And this guy um, was, you know, he was kind of timid and, you know, not at all charismatic. <laughs> <laughs> I like that contrast. There was, I'd actually been in Melbourne hanging out with a friend and I, late night on, late one night on TV, I saw, a minister who ran a singles group and mm-hmm. he just had this thin little reedy voice and he was a very timid fella and uh, I was just really struck by his voice and there was also a singer, a famous old time singer in Australia named Slim Dusty right. and he had a sort of reedy voice too. So uh, that kind of influenced me and... Um, Somehow, all the time I've spent meditating in my life helped me with the kind of visualization and internalization of the guy. And and, um, and, and the script, the, the character was just really well written. Um, there was an early draft of the that script where the guy is, he's in an arcade or something, and uh, Emily DeRabin's character and, and somebody else come up to him and said, how, how much do you cost? And he said, uh, these are my pricings and he points to a sign it's just the word pricing like that's the whole character right there right you know guys these are more pricings your character was a psychic i remember right yeah he was a psychic and we don't really know if he really was a psychic or not but uh, you know they keep they keep changing stuff up on you in that show right yeah exactly you you keep watching it after you uh, yeah i did um I watched it for, I guess I would say two, three seasons. I thought the first two seasons were brilliant. Yeah. Um, and after, you know, for me, once you found out who the others were, and all of a sudden, it just wasn't as mysterious, you know. Right. It, I found the show got less mysterious. And then uh, Carlton Cuse and Damon would get on, go on the show and explain it to people because they thought, oh, you know. Everybody's asking us, what's this about? What's that about? we got to get on there and explain it. I thought that was a mistake. Yeah. You know? Let them wonder. You know? yeah. uh, that was part of the fun of it. Right. And that kind of happened also with one of the other shows you guys started on, <laughs> Alias, where I thought that the first two seasons were great, and then um, which, and then they kind of wrapped up the storyline, and then people really yeah. didn't know where to go after that for the next couple of years. So. Yeah. I think, I, I think Lost Fate, a good show. Um, it just, you know, my particular thing I loved about it was just really never knew what was going on. You right, know, yeah. It was very mysterious. Yeah. 
And, um, yeah, that was a fun show, too. I became very good friends with Carl McCuse. He's, he's a great guy. He's, he's, a, he's a one another very uh, prolific guy. He's made some really great shows. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, we stayed in touch. Right. I think he did Faith Motel, if I'm correct. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And how, how did you get involved? Uh, well, it's one of my daughter's favorite movies up to a point was Frozen. You did a bunch of them. Oh, Frozen. You know, that's something. I still haven't even seen it. I don't remember what I did. <laughs> <laughs> It's, yeah, it's because it was such a popular movie. It's yeah. like at the top of my IMDb or something. Right. Yeah, known yeah. for Frozen. I, I I vaguely remember going in for it. I think I just did some smaller characters. I really should watch it. I, I hear it's a great movie. Yeah, then the second one came out last, last winter, and I felt that one was a better movie than the first one. I mean, oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, not that I'm like you know, the target audience for for the movie, but uh, yeah, I think the storyline for that one was, was, was better. Yeah, oddly, I don't watch a lot of animation. I'm more of a drama guy, so right. a lot of the stuff I do, I don't end up yeah. watching. Right. And then, yeah, it's funny now, because I guess it's kind of coming true right now with the pandemic, was The Last Ship that you worked on for the, the TNT. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. Did I? Was I already in Iceland when I did that? I might have been. Yeah, I remember flying back from Iceland to do it. I don't know if I was permanently moved here. Yeah, so uh, are there any, like, roles that you do and then, like, you kind of watch it afterwards and kind of, like, second-guess yourself a little bit? Um, let's see. I'm sure that there's stuff I've done that I just looked at and it's like I could have done that better. Not so much that I could have made a better choice, but I just could have worked harder, you know. Right. I could have got into it. And, and a lot of that, sometimes you can't. You don't have control over that. I mean, you'll audition for a show the night before you, you know, right. or a day or two before you do it. Or you, you know, you'll get an audition the same way, and you have to make a quick character choice. And you know. but not, you know, that doesn't happen a lot, really, because you know I've, I've always worked pretty hard at it. You know, if it meant staying up two days to figure out what the hell's going on with it, I'll do it. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, you started in, in music, and um, I was blown away this morning. I was doing a little bit, some more research, and I discovered your second album, which you really can't find anywhere. You know, no, it did. didn't come out on CD. Yeah. Um, it didn't sell enough. Uh, no. The first album, I don't think the first album ever came out on CD either, but it came out in vinyl and got on Spotify. Yeah. But there was there was a song on there. It was called uh, Weatherman, and I'm like, okay, that's interesting because I, I knew of another song called Weatherman Says. Fire, fire. 
the same song and you talk yeah. about the jack wagner one. yeah I, I listened to yours and i'm like holy shit this thing is so much and i and i really enjoy the jack wagner song and i'm like this this song is unbelievable i, I love it and i oh, yeah and i found actually i think it was on either amazon or, or ebay today a vinyl copy of, of, of that album so i i bought it today uh, yeah, so yeah i, I, I hope you get some royalty for that final of that <laughs> i don't have one on my first album i gave it to to my drummer oh, here okay. in iceland because he really liked it yeah, and then I, I listened, yeah, I listened to some more, you know, that album, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, what, um, now, I don't think, obviously, it didn't do that well. What things happened? Well, it was, uh, I don't know if it was the right label for me to be on. You know, I was on Motown. Right. And, um, I, you know, my style of music, I, I was, I look, I listen to that album now, so it's very sort of 80s pop. It definitely wasn't R&B. You know, there was nothing on there that you would normally associate with Motown. Um, I mean, those guys were very enthusiastic about signing me, and I loved being there. It's like an honor to be in that label. But musically, I don't... I wasn't part of their target audience, probably. You know what I mean? Um, But, uh, yeah. Let's see. I think... Yeah. I don't... You know, I, I really don't know. I mean... 
it, it just didn't resonate or something probably. Yeah. No, it, it, it's a shame because it's, you know, it's, it's really good. And I wish it was on like, you know, like, you know, iTunes or some of the streaming sites, people can discover it because it's like a departure from like, you know, what you were known for musically. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. My first album was very different than that. And now I'm doing stuff that's completely different than any of it. My whole thing is always just, I keep changing and right. changing styles and trying to incorporate different styles. And that's why I like doing stand up and one man shows. Now I can sort of use everything I've ever done, mash it all together trying to make a virtue of it rather than something that's just confusing, especially in music and especially at that time. You know, people kind of like you to have something identifiable. Right. You know, oh, yeah, that's a new Jameson record. That sounds like, you know, whereas I'd be putting out every tune on the track would sound completely different. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, geez, I don't mean the same guy, you know. Right. And, and acting, too, you know, I'm a character actor, so you go from type to type. It's hard to typecast me. And, um, you know, that can be a, a disadvantage uh, as far as a career goes. But, you know, you can also turn it into kind of an advantage, too, you know, like I feel like I'm doing now. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. Now you really don't have to answer to anybody with your live shows, right? You just it yourself. Yeah, yeah, right, right. That's, that's what I love about it. I do yeah. whatever I want. Right. So how did you first get involved in music? In music, uh, just when I was a kid, um I just was, uh, my mom said an early memory is, uh, me banging on pots and pans trying to play Stravinsky. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what the writer's brain sounded like to me at that age. Um, yeah, they tried to give me piano lessons, which I didn't relate to because right. I wasn't, it just isn't my way of learning, you know, sitting down learning to read a bunch of, uh, classical pieces. Uh, but I uh, I picked up guitar, I guess, when I was around 14 and just got into you know, folk music and then rock and blues and all of that, a little bit of jazz, not much. And uh, just picked up different instruments along the way. And then got in, I got into uh, record producing and, well, first engineering and then producing. And uh, then I joined Foghat, right. which... which um, I think that was my more, my most successful production stuff. And I toured with them for a while and then I made the first solo album and, and I just kind of, you know, bounced around from this type of music to that type of music. When I was in LA, uh, especially in the nineties and early two thousands, I was known for being a musical improviser and making up songs. Right. Uh, I was, I was big into improv comedy during that time. And, uh, that, that was kind of my thing. I was actually at the comedy store for a while, uh, making up songs, you know, along with the stand up comics, <laughs> which was unusual at the time. And, um, and then I teamed up with Gary Anthony Williams. who you might be familiar with He's the, major voiceover guy and also a major actor right. he's, he's really becoming quite the star and uh he's great at musical improv and we teamed up we had a band called the flying finoli brothers <laughs> uh, with a very talented musician named fuzzy morse it was a, basically a trio and uh we just we do a whole show of made up songs and all different styles and uh, that was a lot of fun but that was my connection to music while I was doing the acting stuff. I didn't really start writing songs for, again for quite some time or performing just as a musician live until uh, shortly before I left for Iceland, actually. 
So after you know the second solo album, is that kind of where you kind of got disenchanted for a little while? And kind of um, well, I did that, and through that record, I actually met Richard Bach, the author okay. uh, of uh, you know Jonathan Livingston Seagull and Illusions, and and his wife Leslie. And they got a hold of that record somehow, and they got a hold of me, and um, I worked on them with a. We had this idea to do a soundtrack for their next book, which was called One. Um, and we did, but none of the book publishers could relate to the whole concept. I mean, nowadays it'd be a no brainer. You got a best selling author with a, you were going to stick a CD along with the book. Yeah, great. Absolutely. Um, nobody, nobody got the idea. Nobody could relate to it. They would didn't know how to market it or anything. So nothing happened with that. And I, I that kind of discouraged me, uh, from that. And then I got into a bad rock climbing accident and, uh, was laid up in and out of the hospital for a year and uh, Motown dropped me because I couldn't record and blah 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 um, long story and then I just I started doing voiceover um, almost by chance and that worked out and that led me to improv comedy and I ended up acting well, no, so I mean like guess door closes not one open to unfortunately yeah. yeah yeah I mean I don't regret any of it you know it would all uh, it's, been a, it's been a great journey and it's it's still changing all the time yeah and then obviously you know foghat you know they're best known for slow ride which you were you know a big part of and uh you know i guess they kind of brought that song back into the spotlight a couple of years ago with um guitar hero i think that was like the first right yeah 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 that that song keeps keeps on cranking yeah and uh, i know we've got the sort of seinfeld as well and it's um it's a uh, the song doesn't go away it's a fantastic song so you know be proud of it yeah yeah, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, and then before that, you were part of American Dream, right? That, uh, oh my God, yeah, back in Philadelphia. Yeah, I think uh, that was uh, Todd Rundgren, right? The producer, was his first album he produced, right? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was boy, that's really back in the day. Yeah, Todd and I were kind of the hotshot guitar players in Philly, right? And uh, he got into production, which I thought was really cool. Um, I really liked what he was doing with the Naz, and he liked what we were doing, just the kind of rock we were playing. So yeah, that worked out, and we, um, and then we both ended up with Bearsville Records, which was Albert Grossman's company, and um, our friend Paul Fishkin, who used to be my manager and was Todd's manager for a while, uh, became and he became the president of Bearsville, and uh, yeah, it was a cool thing, a cool kind of transition there. Now I, I've had a couple of guests on who um, had their album produced by Todd, and you know, obviously he's strong-minded, like an alpha man, alpha male. So kind of, you know, butt heads with some, you know, certain like lead singers. Uh, what was he to work with? When he was uh, well, I butted heads with him for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, he wasn't really getting the kind of sound I wanted, right. but you know, I, I didn't. Bitch, I didn't know enough to tell him, hey, you know, I think the the drums are too loud, and can you? Turn down the EQ on the cymbals or something, like that. <laughs> but yeah, we kind of banged heads, you know, not badly, you know, yeah. still friendly. But um, yeah, he 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 has a vision, you know. That's the thing about Todd; he's got a very strong vision, and that's what makes him who he is. You know, the way he, the way he hears music, the way he writes songs, the way he produces, uh, and you know, if if it's, it's in alignment with what the artist wants to do, great. And um, with us, it was kind of not quite, you know, we were, we were sort of the Philly version of the Moby Grape, you know, we wanted to kind of 
organic <laughs> rock sound. And, you know, it's just, uh, it was just a little different. It was, a, it got more of a toddy type sound than we wanted, I think. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, obviously he's, you know, he knows what he's doing now. So <laughs> it's. Yeah, no, he knew what he was doing then. It yeah. just wasn't right. particularly what we wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, Nick, thank you. I really appreciate your time today, and best of luck with the um, the live shows and everything like that. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And a special thanks to Nick for joining me today. You can follow him on Facebook at Nick Jamison. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the person all one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. The show's on SoundCloud. It's also on Podbean. And go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. T-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, it's all there. Our new episode comes in every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.